Why don't you just say the hello everybody part? Hi everybody! Who's that? That's Jared Adelman. That's me. And this is Madison Dix. And we are welcoming you cordially to Science and Podcast. That's our podcast. Brought to you by Science and Pictures Magazine. Mm -hmm. We're here every other week or so with a new piece of scientific literature, which we will break down and make easy to understand, and also make a bunch of jokes about, and also tell you some things that are completely unrelated. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, the last part being uh, absolutely 100% inevitable. Yep. So this week uh, was my turn to bring the paper, and the paper I brought for us this week is... Maybe not so surprising. Uh, it's my third and really most definitely not last uh, on the topic of now extinct dinosaurs. He loves the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Do you want to know why he brought a dinosaur article? Why did I do that? Because I told him he couldn't bring a bug article. <laughs> fans of bugs and dinosaurs will also be fans of Jared Adelman. Yes. Mm -hmm. At least I hope, because I love those things. Yeah, and if you guys like love the bug and dinosaur stuff, you want it to keep coming, like... Slide into our DMs. Let us know. Because we are truly at your mercy. You can talk to us and tell us what you want us to cover. We will do it. So, All right. specifically, this week we're going to be talking about the most famous and well-studied dinosaur of them all. And the possibility uh, that a pair of undescribed sister species actually reigned alongside it. Species that have been hiding in plain sight for centuries. Okay. Whoa. So the most, most studied dinosaur, that's got to be T-Rex. Could be. Oh, you're not going to tell me yet? No. Okay, so whatever it is, we all know about it, but apparently it's hiding in plain sight. Oh, we really do all know about it. Just a tiny T-Rex. Could be. Oh my god, it's right behind you. Oh my god. Clever <laughs> ah! girl. Just kidding. <laughs> that was so dumb. Okay, this paper was authored... No. It's because... You kicked the, the switch. Oh, shit. If Jared even moves a muscle in our recording studio, he turns off all of the lights. Because I am ten feet tall and don't know it. And I am three feet tall. <laughs> and somehow obese. Listen, you don't know if we're telling the truth because this is a podcast, okay? And according to my BMI, I am obese. But looking at me, you wouldn't know it because I'm three feet tall and the color blue and I have giant antennas. All of that. Mm -hmm. 100%. Anyway, this paper was authored by scientist and renowned paleo artist Gregory S. Paul, scientist, author, professor, and museum curator Scott Persons, and J. Van Raltz, a College of Charleston, South Carolina alumnus who uh, learned under Scott Persons, the same guy from the title. Okay, two things. One, Scott Persons is a great name. It is. <laughs> who are you, Mr. Persons? <laughs> Um, also, what's a paleo artist? A paleo artist is, um, one of the really cool kinds of, of artistry in the scientific community because they're allowed to be very, very speculative because they're drawing extinct creatures that we don't really ever fully understand what looked like. So they're the ones who draw the pictures of the dinosaurs for us mm -hmm. and other things, but yeah. Okay, very cool. So they're the ones who everyone got mad at them because there were no feathers, and then everyone else got mad at them because there were feathers. Oh, that's not the only reason people were mad at them. I know, but that's probably the most famous reason. Yes. Uh, another famous reason would be uh, shrink wrapping, which is the uh, very... It's becoming less common, but it's, it's the tendency for a paleo artist to take a skeleton and just draw a very tight skin around it, uh, not giving any speculation to, like, other, like, you know, like a blow-up appendage, like a frigate bird might have, or, you know, any sort of, like, feathers around the body. The fleshy part. Yeah. yeah. We're allowed to speculate, because who the fuck knows what they actually look like? That is very true. Like, if, yeah, because animals have all sorts of crazy stuff going on with their body fat and feathers and fur, and dinosaurs have that stuff, too, so. Why are you trying to reconstruct an elephant? No. You would have no idea about the big floppy ears. No. No idea. Or the proboscis. Oh my god, the big nose. Mm -hmm. It's not, it doesn't have, it doesn't, it doesn't have vertebrae. There is a massive sinus in the center of their face, uh, where the, it attaches to by a muscle, but no. It's like a giant tongue kind of yep. muscle-wise. Oh my god. It's gosh. actually the most complex muscle of any mammal. Okay. It's got like 10,000 different sections in it. Wow. Yeah. 
Now, just for fun, imagine trying to reconstruct an octopus from its bones. Bye. You're just... <laughs> yeah. It's an empty it's, paper. It's a beak. <laughs> it's a beak. It's the only hard part, so you'd probably draw a parrot. Oh, they have a little, little, tiny little inner ear bones. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't help, like, whatsoever. No. no. Yeah. yeah. So, paleo artists, I mean, I'm clapping for you, because... Yeah. That is a fun and difficult job, and a lot of people are always going to be mad at you. Kind of like the people who make movies from books. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving forward. <laughs> so, uh, this paper was published pretty recently, uh, January 22nd of this year, in the journal Evolutionary Biology. And it has a badass title. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title is The Tyrant, King, Queen, and Emperor. Multiple lines of morphological and stratigraphic evidence support subtle evolution and probable speciation within the North American genus Tyrannosaurus. I do love that. I also love the gender inclusivity of the title. Mm -hmm. King, Queen, and Emperor. Oh yeah. Instead of like, yes, Queen, it's going to start being, yes, Emperor! (laughs) I like that. I'm going to start that. I like that a lot. Uh, First, though, let's go through some fun facts. Yes, okay, so the fun fact corner is where we tell you about things that have nothing to do with what we've been talking about or what we're going to talk about. I actually did pull my fun fact from this paper, but it only has a little bit to do with it. Okay. Do you want to go first or should I? I'll go first. Okay. Uh, Madison, did you know that the lion and leopard plates of Big Cat, uh, the species Panthera leo and Panthera pardus, only diverged somewhere around a million and a million and a half years ago? Really? Mm Mm-hmm. As different as they are, a social big cat and a completely solitary big cat that live in virtually different environments, yeah. uh, they only evolved around a million years ago. Lions are so different from the other big cats. That's mm-hmm. really fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. So that means when humans were, you know, if you follow the out of Africa theory, when we were sort of evolving to come down from trees and stuff, lions didn't exist yet? Possibly not. Wow. So all of the, like, your brain has evolved to be afraid of a lion. It's not actually a lion. I wonder what animal. The... Saber-toothed cat? Or the Luca of the lions. Yeah. The universal common ancestor of all the big cats. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. What's your fun fact? My fun fact comes from a book called Sex at Dawn, which I just finished reading. It was really good, except I didn't like the last chapter (laughs) very much, but that's pretty common, I guess, if you read reviews online. I feel like I read a similar book uh, that I, I don't know what yours is about, but I'm going to interrupt anyway. Okay. Um, it's called The Evolution of Beauty by a uh, paleontologist, he might be a paleontologist, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Richard Froome, um, which is all about the evolution of sexual selection across life. Um, and I hated the last part of it because like, the last third of it was about sexual selection in humans, which I just didn't care about. So this book is all about sexual selection in humans. Oh. And, but also comparing us to our closest ancestors, or okay. sorry, closest current living relatives, yeah. bonobos and chimpanzees, and then the other great apes that we're more distantly related to, like gibbons, which are a lesser ape, and gorillas. Mm-hmm. Um, so my fact is not really about human sexuality, it's actually about gorillas. <laughs> okay. <Go on. laughs> So the book makes an argument that humans probably evolved to be promiscuous, basically, in our early history, as in like a multi-male, multi-female mating pattern, as opposed to monogamy, which would be just one male, one female together forever, polygamy, which is like one male, lots of females, mm. or polyandry, which yeah. we have not seen in apes. <laughs> to make this case, they look at testicle size. <laughs> oh, because gorillas have very tiny testicles. The smallest, yeah. dude! <laughs> the size of a little lima bean. Uh-huh. <laughs> and also they're tucked away up inside their bodies. Really? Yeah, they, they are not external. What? Yeah. So it's actually really rare in the apes to have external testicles. Oh, that's fascinating. Because basically it costs a lot of energy because like someone could take you out at any moment. Oh, you know what I mean? You yeah. Know. And that the reason they've evolved to be outside in chimps, bonobos, and humans is because it keeps them cooler, which allows them to produce more sperm, which allows for sperm competition, which wow. is only something that would evolve in a scenario where the females are mating with multiple males. Hmm. 
Um, the other thing about gorillas is their peepees are really small. It's <laughs> a very good fun fact. Three centimeters. Oh my god. So, like, how do they even... I don't know. I don't need Let's to Let's not know. ponder that. I don't um... need to know that much more about it. But anyway, yeah. So. That's for the primatologist to ponder. Mm-hmm. Also, chimps and bonobos have even bigger balls than people. Like, huge, apparently. Um, and that's my fun fact. Moving on, not, not thinking about that. Uh, we are nearly ready to jump into this week's topic. Uh, but first, we gotta get ourselves squared away with some jargon. The jargon corner! Mm-hmm. Jargon is the science words that don't make sense to the general public because they're jargon. And so we pull them out and we make them make sense. So what's in the jargon corner? First up, we have the field of stratigraphy. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it, but it's the way that makes sense Strato. to Strato? Like stratosphere? Like stratigraphy. Okay, so maybe the study or graphing of layers? Yeah. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stratigraphy is the study of the layering and composition of material uh, across the surface and seabeds of the Earth, and the relationship to the geological timescale. I feel good about myself. Yeah, you got it right. As one might imagine, uh, the results of such research can have pretty major implications for evolutionary paleobiology. That's biology of extinct organisms, usually. Um, And our understanding of how ancient organisms would actually relate to one another. For example, the fossil record of the bird family tree is now clear enough to show the quite piecemeal evolution of increasingly bird-like dinosaurs progress as one looks through fossils closer and closer to us in geologic time. Did you know dinosaurs are birds? If you didn't, Jared will make sure you do. Wait, well, birds are dinosaurs, but not all dinosaurs. Uh, see? <laughs> Baited me! <laughs> Next up, monotypic or monospecific genus. Monotypic. One type. Monospecific. One species. So a genus with only one species in it. Mm-hmm. Yes! Yeah, two for two. I'm on a roll. If you'll recall from an earlier episode, a genus is the next major level of classification that, that's above species. Yep. Uh, species placed in monotypic genre, that's the plural of genus, um, are typically removed from their previous genus to, to do so unless they're being described for like the first time. Because of new findings uh, that make them too different to stay in their old genus with their congenerics or their genus mates. There you go. Like uh, eagle rays, for mm-hmm. example. They're the only species in their genus. Yeah. Um, another example of this uh, for all my New England birders out there is the reclassification of the American tree sparrow, which is now Spitzeloides arborea, uh, which was moved from its old branch, the genus Spitzella, on the basis of DNA evidence. Uh-huh. So now it's on its own. Somewhat related, most primatologists and anthropologists really want to get rid of the whole homo sapien thing and make us be pan sapiens because we are really, should be in the same genus as the other great apes. We do share a lot of DNA with them. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're, we're pan sapiens now. Woo! Mm-hmm. Anyway. That, that's science. Genre are destroyed and absorbed and uh, reformed. So, uh, no homo. <laughs> So, uh, although uh, by far the most common place to find monotypic genre is in the fossil record, since the true diversity of ancient life on our planet will always be at least partially obscured by the scarcity of reachable and intact remains. Yeah, not everything that lives get fossilized. Barely, barely any of it. Exactly. So looking back, it's really hard. It's kind of like if you're trying to solve a crime and it's 1970. Mm-hmm. Our third jargon is the family Tyrannosauridae. Okay, so that would be the family that has T-Rex in it. You're right. Much like how genre relate to species, families are the next major level of classification above genus. Mm-hmm. We got our little Russian nesting doll of relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tyrannosauridae include not just T-Rex, but other bipedal megapredators like Gorgosaurus, Tarbosaurus, Albertosaurus, Eutyranus, and more. All right. Cool. I have not heard of any of those other sources. Eutyranus was a Cretaceous period, uh, very young Tyrannosaur. Evolutionarily, that was preserved with a full coat of feathers. Oh, very cool. Mm-hmm. Love that. I'll oh, be yeah. guessing Albertosaurus was discovered in Canada. Yep. Oh, 
Oh, there's so many cool boss events in Canada. Dinosaur State Park is up there. Uh, so these dinosaurs uh, that I just mentioned are united on the basis of shared morphology of the cranium, legs, and probably more, but the fucking papers I found that could probably tell me were all, of course, behind a paywall. Uh, this one was too. Um, I, I found a way around that, but I wasn't going to do it multiple times. That seems especially rude, because you know who really wants to hear about T-Rexes the most? Me. Y well. <laughs> That's true, but I was thinking like 12-year-olds. Yeah. And you know who doesn't have money? 12-year-olds. Yeah, so that's just really rude. Yeah, exactly. Really mean. A note on species classification. Yeah. I've always assumed if things are in the same genus, they are more closely related than things in the same family. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that for our listeners in case anyone didn't know that. So, for example, um, what genes are gorillas in? What genus? Yeah. Pan. Of course. Okay, so um, for now, humans are in the same genus, uh, Homo. Um, mm -hmm. That's just how it stands currently. Yeah. Um, so you could say that Homo and Pan are very closely related because they're in the family committed day. There you go. Sorry. But lemurs are in a different primate family entirely. Uh, so, you know, we're more what much more closely related to the genus Pan than we are to the lemurs. Yeah, so when you're looking at classification, the the bigger ones, like family, are like maybe a branch, and then like genus is like a twig, and then species are like the flowers. Yeah, and then you can go even higher, but we won't be doing that here. Yeah. Because there's just no need for it. Nope. Okay, cool. Oh, uh, fun fact. Uh, Dinosauria is an undiagnosed clade. It's got a size that's sort of like they're just the dinosaurs. It doesn't really fit into, like, the normal mold of classification. It just lets you know these are the things that we can call dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fun I'm with that. <laughs> uh, last up in the jargon corner, wastebasket taxon. Wastebasket taxon. I'm guessing that would be, like, a classification that has since been tossed in the wastebasket. Partially. Okay. Uh, partially not. It depends on the situation. But uh, wastebasket taxa, taxa being the plural of taxon, mm -hmm. uh, can range pretty broadly um, in their, their level of classification, but unanimously serve as a place to lump organisms that are probably related in some obscure way, but don't otherwise fit in anywhere else. Oh. Um, wastebasket taxa were, unsurprisingly, uh, very common across the board when taxonomy was still trying to figure itself out. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the genus Bufo, which is uh, a genus of toads, has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as different toad species that are in the same family have been moved to different genera because they're not Bufo, they're too different. Yeah, <laughs> trying to classify organisms before the genetic boom is really similar to trying to solve a crime scene before the genetic boom. Very tough. Yeah, you're just doing your best guesswork. Uh-huh. Although it does seem kind of more fun. Yes, um, less fun for the uh, morphologists who uh, read the paper to find that genetics have completely abended the morphology that they thought united a family. Yeah. Fun times. Some of them have actually, though, struck a stuck around out of convenience, uh, like the mammal order Carnivora, whose oh. members are united on the basis of being mammals that either are or used to be carnivores. Yep. Yep. That is a wastebasket taxon. Wastebasket taxa. It would be. Um, are still especially common, uh, though, in the taxonomy of extinct organisms, uh, largely because remains are often far too fragmentary to offer really detailed evolutionary clues. You might see this if you're ever looking at, like, a fossil stand. Um, there is a type of, like, straight-coned cephalopod called Orthoceros, which is maybe the biggest wastebasket taxon ever. Just all the straight-coned animals that, that were cephalopods that had the straight-set shells were just put in there. And I don't know if that's been changed yet. I mean, I don't know if it has either, because do we have any genetic information from early cephalopods? That's not possible as of yet. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> probably they're still in that wastebasket taxa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's too bad, though, because we have to start our paper. All right, so we've done the fun facts. We've done the jargon. Now we're cracking into the actual paper. Yes, we are. Start us off, Jared. So, Madison, uh, did you know that there are a rather outsized number of studies and even full-on technical books uh, dedicated solely to the genus Tyrannosaurus than pretty much any of the other non-avian dinosaurs? 
That is to say, there's a lot of fucking books about T-Rex and not a lot about the other ones. There is a lot about the other ones, but there is an outsized amount of attention dedicated solely to T-Rex. I believe that. Yeah, he's pretty famous. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, as you just said, really not hard to imagine why that might be. Heaviest... He's got a big head and little arms. Yes. <laughs> you were waiting. And we love it. How long were you waiting to do that? No, I just popped in my head just now. Damn you. As the world's heaviest terrestrial mega predator possibly ever. No. Okay, the largest and heaviest mega predator? Mm-hmm. What makes you a mega predator? Uh, you have to be above Oh, a as in you're eating megafauna. Yeah. Okay. Or okay. necessarily. Well, then why isn't the blue whale in there? Because terrestrial. You said terrestrial. I did say terrestrial. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a real... I'm, I stand a blue whale, okay? <laughs> you were ready to defend an animal I wasn't even insulting. I'm... Because they are the biggest animal that's ever lived on Earth. Yeah, they're the biggest predator ever. But they're not the biggest terrestrial mega predator. No. Because they're not terrestrial anymore. There are a lot of descriptive words in there, and I only heard half of them. Damn you, ADHD. Um, (laughs) So, starting that sentence over. Because Madison's not going to interrupt me this time. We'll see. As the world's heaviest terrestrial mega predators possibly ever... Uh, T-Rex, the only described species in that monotypic genus, has reigned in as the world's most popular dinosaur, there's actual metrics to say that, uh, since its discovery was first announced in, like, the 1800s. Okay, imagine your whole life, the whole existence of your species, no one gives a shit, and then, like, tens of thousands of years later, you are the most popular in the entire world, and you never get to know. I could probably say that any prey item of T-Rex probably gave a shit in the moment that they saw them. But that did not make them popular. No. No. Well, popularity is, you know, double-edged sword. I mean, any publicity is good publicity. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Moving on. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to be the most popular later on. No. If they look at the fossil record from this time, they're going to be like, Jesus Christ, those monkeys were horny and dangerous as hell. I hate us now. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So uh, this popularity over T-Rex has pretty clearly uh, held over professional paleontology as well because of so many fucking studies. (laughs) Um, There is one peculiar aspect of this professional popularity, though, uh, and it starts with the fact that when referred to, the genus Tyrannosaurus is damn near never spoken or written without the species name Rex following it. Yeah, because it's a mono. There's only one. Right, but here's why that's a big deal. Okay. Uh, when talking about lawn extinct genre, that's, again, the plural of genus, and pretty much anything uh, in involving scientific literature, common practice is to say that genus only, even if that genus is monotypic, only containing a single species. Oh. Uh, Okay, so usually you would just say the genus and not the species, if there's only one species in the genus. Exactly. Uh, For example, Ankylosaurus magdementurus is just Ankylosaurus. Oh yeah, Ankylosaurus. Mm -hmm. Pachycephalosaurus wyomingensis is just Pachycephalosaurus, thank God. And Tiktaalik rosier is just Tiktaalik. Tiktaalik, yeah! Mm -hmm. That's the bastard who came on land and made all of this happen. Mm -hmm. And here we are. Uh, now, the reason this is necessarily the case is, again, because the fossil record is super fickle um, and could very easily be, be concealing any number of species that could be placed in those genera. That is why it's pretty odd that Tyrannosaurus rex is always stated as such, because it preemptively stifles any possibility that the tyrant lizard king may have actually had congener company. It does, yeah. Well, I mean, I think we just really want to say the rex part... Because he's the king. Could be, but why does that extend to the scientific literature? It, I mean, the same reason that the Pluto stuff happened. Because when something gets really popular, it becomes less scientific. And right, more... but when scientific uh, study discovers a human bias, it roots it out, and here we are. It should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> this assumption is so ingrained and widespread among the dino folks that just last year, uh, a fossil footprint, that's called an ichnofossil for any of my dino enthusiasts out there, uh, eggs are also ichnofossils, also poop. Oh, because it's... They're trace fossils. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, just last year, a fossil footprint was assigned specifically to T-Rex. Wait. Ichnofossils? Huh? Ichnofossils. 
Can I continue? <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke that I would make. <laughs> it's not a fossil, it's just a poop. Ick! No fossil. Tell that to all my coprologists out there. Yep. <laughs> Poop scientists. Okay. But the footprints was assigned specifically to T-Rex, despite the fact that this kind of thing is practically unheard of, assigning a species-level designation to a footprint. Mm. Um, and also that the print is a full thousand kilometers, that's like 600 miles away from the nearest possible Tyrannosaurus remains that have been confirmed. Hmm. Long, long way away. Wait, how, how much of the Earth was T-Rex tramsing around? So basically, T-Rex existed in the, what might have been the last two million years at, at the absolute end, 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 end of the dinosaurs, and T-Rex was the only genus of megapredator within its range. It basically so, had half the planet colonized, and then there was another Tyrannosaurus genus in the south. See, that's what I sort of remembered, is that they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. So why would the fact that it's 600 miles away be a problem? It's weird to do that in paleontology uh, on only the basis of the fact that we only know of T-Rex. Okay. It's just, it shows a bias that really shouldn't be happening. Alright. You know? Okay. Tell me more. <laughs> and you know what they say. When you assume... You risk the possibility of T-Rex becoming a taxonomic wastebasket. Oh, that is what they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why this week's authors set out to perform the first broad-scale analysis of all known Tyrannosaurus specimens found to date. Alright, mm -hmm. so they're going to look at all of the T-Rexes that we've ever found, including their, their ick-no fossils. Sometimes, yeah. And they're going to tell us uh, who's wrong about stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, but first, there's another thing I should mention here, uh, which is that the known bones from individuals um, attributed to T-Rex show a rather large degree of variation when comparing them to other paleo species. Huh. So the bones that everyone says are T-Rex bones are more different from each other than you'd expect. Yes. Huh. Uh, in the mind of a paleontologist. Yeah. Uh, this variation is primarily seen in the robusticity or thickness of the femur bone, which is rather significant uh, considering that the femurs of bipedal animals like theropod dinosaurs, those are the two-legged predators mm -hmm. mostly, um, and us serve as a quite reliable proxy for estimating the size of the animal as a whole. Yeah, if you got to be running on two feet, those... Those femurs got to be strong. So because they bear the weight of the whole body. Yeah, I mean, picture a T-Rex. It's like that giant body on those <laughs> two, like, thick thighs. You talked about their thick thighs in the last episode. There you go. Yeah, so, <laughs> once again, T-Rex have thick thighs. Those are the femur bones. You'd mm -hmm. expect them to all be thick, but... But... Um... Even in um, some older specimens of similar size, the degree of femur robusticity is clearly visible to the naked eye, uh, which would imply a significantly more heavyset individual versus a more gracile, light-footed one. Okay, I feel their body shaming a little bit there. <laughs> um, I think a thick-thighed T-Rex can be perfectly gracile. But is it Tyrannosaurus Rex? Or is it their thick-thighed little friend? Remember, like, the teenage ones? Maybe. They're just going through their hoe phase. Could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Madison the paleontologist. <laughs> They're just, just... I like her hypothesis, but I don't know if it can be tested. Okay. Um, in addition to the femur thickness, T-Rex specimens also sometimes differ in the number of teeth they possess. Yeah, it, again, this supports my teenage T-Rex hypothesis. <laughs> They're getting into trouble, okay? In some skulls, there is only a single pair of frontmost uh, capital D-shaped incisor teeth in the bottom jaw, while in other specimens, there are two pairs of those incisor teeth. Okay. So you grow more teeth as you get older, so I feel like, again, this could be our thick five little friends. Could be. Uh, but for that to be true, then uh, these uh, number of teeth would have to correlate with age. Well, it does in humans, and that's the only basis I have. I am not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if that's true for T-Rex is what I'm getting at. Oh, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. I am theorizing up the wazoo. <laughs> <laughs> this unusually large variation seen in different individuals has actually been recognized for some time now, uh, since about the 1990s. 
And so four competing hypotheses have emerged to offer an, an explanation, uh, none of which have been the ones Madison has suggested. Actually, that's not true. No, uh, you, you, you actually did hit on one. Um, <laughs> gotcha! So one of them, uh, the individual variation hypothesis, states that the observed differences only look odd by themselves, and that the variation seen in T. rex isn't actually that high when compared with other species of megatheropod. Oh, okay. Those massive, often predatory dinosaurs. So the big ones who are walking on two legs and munch and all the other dinosaurs, yeah. they do vary quite a bit. But did they, does T-Rex vary more than them? Another, which is actually the one you hinted at, uh, the ontogenetic hypothesis, predicts that the observed variation is simply a result of specimens reaching maturity. And uh, this also uh, holds that the most robust specimens should near unanimously be individuals that have already reached adult size. Yeah. Which we can tell in Tyrannosaurus, because we're that good. Oh, good. Not me specifically, but... Yeah, but yeah. the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the paleo people. Exactly. Scott Persons. Exactly. <laughs> Next, uh, the sexual dimorphism hypothesis states that the varying degrees of robusticity is a natural consequence of size uh, between male and female specimens. Oh, and that these robust and gracile individuals should definitely exist in roughly equal proportions, maybe slightly more females, uh, throughout the entire span of their existence. Why would T-Rex be sexually dimorphic? Why would any animal be sexually dimorphic? Um, Sexual selection happens everywhere. Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons. Yeah, but yeah. that's a hypothesis that could be right. Yeah, it could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do we know? I just was wondering if you knew why they would be sexually dimorphic, because I just read a whole book about it. <laughs> um, so that's actually one of the hypotheses for how feathers became as diverse as they did in general. Mm -hmm. Although, the emerging picture is that T-Rex might not have had feathers at all, but that's not a good example here. Almost all birds of prey, females are larger. Females. It makes sense to me, especially if they're like ovoviviparous or oviparous, because mm -hmm. they need more space and energy. Exactly. To make those babies. Mm -hmm. All right. Problem is that's hard to prove with like forty-two specimens <laughs> um, of, yeah. of the entire species. Okay, so they might be younger ones. They might be males if they're smaller. What else we got? Mm-hmm. Uh, the last competing hypothesis is, uh, in my opinion, the most exciting one uh, that we've already alluded to, that T-Rex is not actually alone in the genus Tyrannosaurus. Mm. This should manifest in a gradual divergence in forms of individuals and their abundance over their temporal uh, range, or their range in time. Yeah, it, yeah, because evolution happens over time, mm -hmm. and I, ideally, as they radiate, we would see differences pop up in isolated regions too, right? That's really tough to say in paleontology, oh. uh, but in an, it, 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 in an ideal scenario. Pangea times. Exactly. Yeah. This was actually after Pangea split, but... Okay, which, what, what was it then? Man... It was Laurasia and Gondwanaland. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Great. Which are so cool names. Uh, Gondwanaland um, <laughs> sounds amazing. Gondwanaland is so cool. Sounds kind of like Shondaland. It kind of does. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, the authors also hoped that the difference in tooth count would independently validate their speciation hypothesis, with only one mouth type existing at first, and then the other popping up and being tied to either the robust or gracile morph as they may or may not appear. Okay. Would their prediction hold true? I don't know. Do those mouths match those thighs? Find out. Let's find out. <laughs> uh, oh, another thing I have to say. The following work was done acknowledging that while the number of T-Rex specimens available for study is rather impressive by fossil standards... 42. That's not the exact number, uh -oh. but... This is a number you made up? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was holding on to it. It might be. It is the meaning of the universe. It is. Um, however, unfortunately, that's not a sample size that would be uh, an easy sell by any standard in any other branch of science. No. However, uh, this is paleontology, where a large robust sample is the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, because as discussed, not all dead things stick around. Most of them don't. Mm -hmm. Vast majority do not. Mm -hmm. 
Also, the authors analyzed their data using a wide, wide variety of statistical tools designed specifically for use with small sample sizes. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, they did everything they could to keep their work as free from human bias as humanly possible. And this is... <laughs> <laughs> as free from human bias as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Science. <laughs> anyway. Yep. Uh, this is also the last time I'll be mentioning statistical tools this episode because I really fucking hated reading through that section and won't be doing it again. Oh, thank God. I was really worried that you were going to, like, go and tell me all the statistics. No! Stuff. God, I no. was about to take a nap right here. That alone took me an equal time to read them the rest of the paper. Yeah. No. Um, okay. You ready? Yes. So first, the authors used uh, all, the, all of the more complete specimens of, of T-Rex, I think there were about 12, uh, to verify that, that the same level of robustness seen in the femur was also present throughout the body as a whole, basically okay. checking if the proxy holds true in T-Rex. Are they thick throughout? Mm-hmm. They were. Meaning that the femur, as a proxy for whole body size trick, could be used here. If they got thick thighs, they got thick lives. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Additionally, about 75% of individuals with, with more than one accessible bone uh, looked to very cleanly fit into either the robust or gracile category, which indicated that these categories were indeed testable and valid. So basically you've got three more. Hold on, hold on. They were either slim or thick, and there was no in-between. Well, there was. There was an in-between. So, so, so slim, you got... thick, if you will. Yes. So three morphs. You had slim, slim, thick, and thick. All right. Why do you always turn this episode into this? <laughs> Listen, if we're talking about T-Rexes, we're talking about is she thick? And those are the rules. I didn't make them. I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> then... The authors tested uh, how the ontogenetic hypothesis, that's the maturity one, held up to their data. For the ontogenetic hypothesis to hold water, a clear correlation should be seen between the extra, ro extra robust femurs and the individuals that have become full adults. Does such a correlation exist? And how do they know if they've become full adults? Is it the teeth? Based on the structure of the bones. So there's two types of uh, cells that, that build bones. You have like the primary ones that build the first really strong layer, and then you have the secondary ones that become secondaries of secondaries and, of secondaries of secondaries of secondaries. And that's secondaries. why when you break a bone, it's less strong. Exactly. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's how they know it's the bones. Not the, it's not how many teeth they have. Exactly. It's okay. how they use them. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right now. Oh, I'm having fun. Um, <laughs> but no, there was no such correlation, uh, between absolute size and maturity. In oh, fact, really? and this was really cool, uh, the largest specimen of them all happens to be very clearly gracile and not robust. The largest one is not thick. Mm-hmm. She's just, like... She's gracile. Gwyneth Paltrow up there. Mm-hmm. Just real tall and skinny. Exactly. Like an elven T-Rex. Exactly. Call her Arwen. They didn't. Ah. <laughs> So sorry, ontogenetic hypothesis, but you've been rendered null. Next, the authors took on the individual variation hypothesis, which, if true, should manifest in that variation seen in T-Rex specimens not actually being that exceptional when compared with the other huge dinosaurs. Okay. So now they're going to look at the other huge dinosaurs and see if they also have the same, like, slim, thick variations. Mm -hmm. All right, gotcha. To do this, uh, they pulled data from some of the other Tyrannosauridae, including Albertosaurus, Despletosaurus, Gorgosaurus, Tarbos I love these names, Tarbosaurus, Alliuramus, Electrosaurus, and an undescribed one that's been dubbed Raptorex. Tag yourself, I'm Gorgosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, does the data line up with their prediction of the individual hypothesis? Is T-Rex actually exceptional? Um, I'm gonna guess that T-Rex is not as special as she thinks she is. Oh, she sure is. She is as special as she thinks she is? Taking all of the T-Rex specimens together, uh, one finds that their proportions differ by a value of about 30%. Um, only one other Tyrannosaurid genus, that of Displetosaurus, even comes close with a difference in, in proportions of about 23%. Huh. This disparity is even more telling when the variation seen in T-Rex is compared with the combined score of all of its study family members, 
still beating out their combined variety by 14%. Okay, so there's a lot more variation in T-Rex than in their closest related known other species. Uh Uh-huh. And when the smaller T-Rex specimens are taken out of that data pool, the Rex specimens are a whopping 55% more varied. Okay, so since we know it's not an ontogenetic thing, the young ones and the older ones, it's more likely sexual dimorphism. We'll see. Okay, so it's either sexual dimorphism or speciation now. Okay. Yes. So this thing that we've just described, that 55 uh, or 30, 30% variation, is huge. Uh, especially considering that the combined Tyrannosaurid sample represents about 10 million years of, of evolutionary time and change, while T-Rex existed for less than 2 million years. Wow. In less than 8 million years of time, uh, they diversed by a rather significant percentage. Which, for that time period, is even more significant. Uh Uh-huh. Because it wasn't one of those times when everyone was changing real fast. Yeah. Uh Which, there are those times, but this was not one of them. Yeah. Uh Okay. Moreover, Rex's variation is skewed ever more and more towards greater variation as one moves forward in time. Okay, so that leans towards speciation. Sure does. Yeah, as you, if they get more different as you go more later, that means they was getting more different as they went more later, which is how you get a new species. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. (laughs) It's been science in Hicktown. Let's talk a little bit more about the time aspect and what the stratigraphical results have to say about the sexual dimorphism hypothesis. Busted! When one looks at the oldest dated specimens of T-Rex, we find a notable and absolutely complete absence of that quantifiable gracile morph. Moving further in time, the gracile morphs begin to appear around the middle of Tyrannosaurus's tenure, and are most common right up until the age of, well, the end of that age, age of dinosaurs. Tooth count, while unfortunately less robust of a data set than femur size, also appears to change in time. Specimens with two of those incisiform teeth are the only ones present in older rocks. While over time, the single tooth condition shows up and appears to be slightly more correlated with that of those gracile dinos. Hmm. So basically, uh, some of the, both the extra robust and, and gracile dinos have that one tooth condition. Okay, so as we go further in time, the dinosaurs get more tall and gracile and less thick. Some of them do. Some of them become more robust and some of them stay T-Rex. Oh, okay, so you get more differences between the three varieties. This is a multiple speciation event. In the areas where you find the really tall ones, did the, was there like a, a fashion week happening? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask a good question there. <laughs> I know, I do so serious. I know, voice. your face was, and your face. <laughs> you got me there. But I was being a jester. Okay. So... Uh, but yeah, so the tooth thing, while not really statistically viable in a really complete sense, does appear at least to support it. With the gracile morphs being temporally isolated to newer specimens, and tooth counts, while again being really too small of a sample to truly verify, those are both appearing to change and get more common over time. All right, so the teeth are correlated with the, the thickness situation and it also seems to be going the same way yes all right so what does all this mean for the future of the genus tyrannosaurus or the past god damn it (laughs) (laughs) well let's review she ain't got no future i am sorry (laughs) i hate to break it to you but she's gone you know (laughs) she exists in her closest genetic relative the turkey Oh, really? I thought it was the chicken. Everyone thinks that, but for some reason, it's the turkey, not the chicken. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Which doesn't mean that they've they've evolved to become closer to dinosaurs. It actually means the opposite, that their DNA has changed the least from that time. So imagine, before your time, you were the most popular. You were the king of lizards. And then fast forward, you're very popular still, but... um, for the people reason. eat you and also you drown in the rain because you suck up oh that's not true it's not true no oh birds aren't dumb madison well i thought turkeys were to an extent <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna completely defend her yeah. but um yeah 
So, uh, again, let's review. Using the modern uh, and latest largest assemblage of Tyrannosaurus specimens to date, our authors found no clear link between robust or gracile individuals and their determined age. This means that it's quite unlikely that the variation we've been talking about can be explained as a product of ontogeny or the aging process. Additionally, the total quantified variation seen in Tyrannosaurus specimens clearly exceeds the family members uh, and other megatheropods that it was compared to. Oh, I forgot that they also used Allosaurus, which is in a different family. Alright. Yeah. Allosaurus is cool. Oh, um, Allosaurus. Yeah. I heard Dallasaurus. And I was like, howdy. <laughs> <laughs> we're almost done. So one, fa one fun fact about Allosaurus. Mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, dubbed the butcher of, of the Jurassic because their jaw was modified in a way that they probably, like got a bit of a grip with, with their bottom jaw, opened up their bottom jaw as wide as they could, and just brought the fucking guillotine down. Oh, you mean the top jaw? Yes. Wow. So cool. So they called him the Butcher? The Butcher of the Jurassic. Why not the Revolutionary? Well, why don't you be a paleontologist? <laughs> I want to call them the Proletariat of the Jurassic. I mean, if we're talking guillotine. I like Butcher of the Jurassic, for that matter. Yeah, whatever. Where even was I? Oh, and uh, with that variation, it's even more insane uh, when you line all of them up together, because T-Rex, or maybe not, is still more uh, diverse. So T-Rex was in the process of speciation into three distinct subgroups. Maybe. At the very least. Maybe. Finally, uh, the appearance of distinctly gracile and robust morphs of Tyrannosaurus does not happen until somewhere in the ballpark of a million years after they first appear. And this is supported in part by the delayed appearance of skulls with lower tooth counts as well. Now, because of paleontology's curse of small sample size, uh, this data unfortunately does not meet what's known as the ideal proof, that's an actual term, uh, for any of the hypotheses that we've covered. It does, however, lean further towards the multiple species hypothesis than all of the other ones on a level that really can't be ignored. For sure. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I have been thinking about the word gracile quite yeah. a bit because you've said it a lot mm -hmm. and I have not heard it before today. So I looked it up. Oh, I, I thought I explained it. It's like less, it's like not robust. You did, but I wanted to see, you know, the Oxford Dictionary definition because i'd never heard of it before uh -huh. um slender or thin especially in a charming or attractive way why that word <laughs> this i don't know did you help them make it <laughs> i was gonna say this points to my hypothesis that when you're talking about t-rex you have to talk about them as if you're objectifying a human person <laughs> but instead a tri a, a cretaceous mega predator there's there's no arguing that t-rexes are sexy Okay? That's all I'm saying. And the evidence is clear that the foremost scientists agree with me. Scott Persons. This is what the Am I wrong? This is what the conservatives are afraid of. Like, you chose this the exact conversation. This is the gay agenda. <laughs> <laughs> Sexualizing dinosaurs. <laughs> um, anyway. And so, with all of this under consideration, the authors of this amazing study formally propose and name not just one, but two additional species of Tyrannosaurus. Species that descended from the Tyrant Lizard King and lived alongside them until the end of all of their collective reigns. Thus, the Queen, King, and Emperor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Gracile Morph is given the epithet Tyrannosaurus Regina, the Tyrant Lizard Queen. Why? Why? What do you mean? Why can't the tall, cute, slender one be a boy? Boys can be queens. Touche. You know? <laughs> I just think, I think we're reinforcing some problematic uh, body stereotypes for these lizards. They're dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So the gracile ones are the queens. Mm -hmm. Arwen, and, if you will. And the extra robust morph, this is so badass, is dubbed Tyrannosaurus Imperator. The Tyrant Lizard Emperor. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
I would say that um, it also makes a lot more sense now that Tyrannosaurus was apparently the only genus of terrestrial megapredator where it ranged um, in space and time, like we just talked about, mm -hmm. uh, because they kept it in-house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. It is now quite plausible that the genus Tyrannosaurus divided and conquered, with the king, queen, and emperor only being unseated by an 18-kilometer-wide asteroid with really bad timing. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, I wonder how much more they would have diverged if that asteroid had come, like, 5 million years later. Going by the logic that a species average is, like, 10 million years, they would have lived for quite a longer time. Yeah. I wonder how much they would have changed things. I don't know. Maybe they eventually got over to the other landmass, and I forgot what predator was uh, living adjacent to them, but maybe they unseated them. Yeah, like, or I'm not if. sure if, like, planetary bodies affect us that much, you know, day-to-day -day life, but when they strike our planet, they definitely do. Oh, waves do happen. Uh, <laughs> especially tidal waves, yeah, tsunamis. Looks like your asteroid is in the atmosphere and it's on the... Oh, no, we're all dead. Also, uh, you were basically completely vaporized if you were within, like, 500 miles of that impact. Yeah, um, that's, that's way worse than Mercury retrograde. <laughs> did you hear, maybe three years ago, or, like, two years ago, before time stopped, um, there was a fossil bed found at the end of the Cretaceous that was completely bombarded by molten glass. And because of the dating and the timing of, of that impact, uh, they were theorizing that this is one of the only snapshots we ever have of the immediate aftermath of that asteroid hit. Wow. Just molten glass raining from the sky. Because so much of, like... Killing a pond of fish. Oof. On the one Like, you want to talk apocalypse? That is an apocalyptic event. If I get to be a ghost, I'll, and time travel, if... <laughs> I want to go see that because it wouldn't hurt me because I'm a ghost and raining molten glass. I do want to see what that looks like, but only if I'm already dead. I think for my fun fact next week, I'm going to bring uh, the book The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs because Dr. Stephen Bruzat, who was actually cited a lot um, in, in this study, did... Well, of course, he's the king of the lizard kings. Mm -hmm. He did a dramatic retelling of uh, the impact of the asteroid and the effect it might have had on the Earth just based on like mathematical modeling. Um, it hits like a horror story. Yeah, I bet. Like, holy shit. Yeah, um, I've read a couple, I haven't read his summary, but I've it's so seen good. some YouTube videos and stuff, because it's fascinating. It is fascinating. It is interesting that the world has ended so many times before. Every 27 million and a half years, it just seems to end. Are we overdue? No. Are we underdue? How much longer? On a level that we personally probably no, 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 I can't. can save. I can't do Tuesday. How about Wednesday? Uh, <laughs> we can do Thursday. Uh, Thursday's the... not good for me. Oh, unless afternoon? Thursday afternoon, maybe Saturday. Um, asteroids. End of the world uh, on a Saturday? Atmospheric poisoning, volcanic eruption. What would you say you want to have? Um, if it's on Saturday, poison's fine. Otherwise, volcanic eruption. Okay. What about all the lakes uh, release all of their CO2 at once and suffocate the whole planet? You know, listeners, let us know uh, what works for your schedule and how would you like to go. And um, okay. Hey, what's that in the sky? <laughs>